Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. On July 17th, a group of eight international NGOs came together in an unprecedented way to form what they call the Global Emergency Response Coalition. They have launched an exceedingly rare joint effort to raise funds and awareness around a global food crisis that is affecting some 20 million people across four countries. Now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast or read UN Dispatch, you know this is something I've been covering for a while, but it has not yet penetrated much into the media consciousness, and neither are donors contributing funds commensurate to the scale of the problem. On the line with me to discuss this new coalition is Deepmala Mela of Mercy Corps, which is one of the eight participating NGOs. Deepmala explains the crisis across four countries before we get into an in-depth conversation about her work in South Sudan, which is one of the countries most affected by this food crisis. In fact, famine was declared in parts of South Sudan for a period of time this year. This is a timely conversation, and you will also get insights into what life is like for an aid worker working to combat famine in one of the harshest political environments there are in the world today to be an aid worker. Deepmala and I recorded a video of our conversations for Blogging Heads, and if you'd like to watch us have this conversation, please visit bloggingheads.tv. Otherwise, you can listen on. And now here is Deepmala Mehela. Country Director for Mercy Corps in South Sudan. Oh, and we caught up while she was in D.C. in a brief uh, break from South Sudan. Here she is. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The crisis, the hunger crisis, where 20 million people are threatened by starvation. Despite the scope and urgency of this situation, this issue has received much less media attention in the US and people have a much lesser awareness about it. So our goal is to increase awareness as well as donations so that we can very promptly and urgently respond to the crisis. And there's a website which is globalresponse.org. The coalition is launched today and the website has gone live today and it will run till the 28th of this month. And we're speaking on Monday, the 17th of July. Uh, and I guess what made me want to reach out to you is the uniqueness of this kind of coalition coming together. I mean, I, I have reported on humanitarian issues, global humanitarian issues for years. And, you know, on like rare occasions, 
uh, organizations or a number, a coalition of NGOs will form to like issue a joint statement. But I've never in my experience, can I recall a situation where you have these diverse NGOs coming together in like a joint fundraising appeal. Is that accurate? Like, is there any precedent for something like this? This is the first time we are doing this. And the prime reason for us deciding to do something like this is the strong belief that we are stronger together. And the situation is very desperate. The crisis is very big. 20 million people facing threat of starvation. It is definitely not okay. And the resources which we have, and I mean financial resources, are not matching up to the need. The appeals have, when I say appeals, I mean to say the financial resources available are only 30%, around 30% of what we need. So all eight of us, we have our unique strengths, which complement each other. And we work in different countries, some like Mercy Corps, we are working in all the four countries which are at the risk of famine, which is South Sudan, Yemen, uh, Somalia, and Nigeria. So uh, we, we really think that when we come together, we'll be able to increase the awareness of the American public. And, and we know it by experience that Americans are one of the most generous populations in the world. And trends have shown us that if America donates, the rest of the world follows suit. So is there like a, a goal for, for this in terms of, of dollar amount? Like, do you know or, or do you have any idea, expectations of, of the kind of funding you will get? And I assume that all the money is kind of going into one general like 501c3 fund, right? Like like there's probably like a fund that was set up that is going to disperse it to the each mm -hmm. organization. Is, is that correct? That's correct. So we have duly set up a global relief fund to which all the money will come. And uh, this will be distributed equally among the uh, eight members of this coalition. Do you know how much you're expected to, to result? Because it's like, what, a two-week appeal? Yeah, it's a two-week appeal. You know, we thought about it and we have not put a dollar figure, which is a target. Um, let us see how much comes. And you asked me, what is our expectation? To be very candid, our expectation is people should be should be giving as much as they can and as much they would at this point, uh, because the need is very very high. So it we thought it's really not fair to put a number, and we will just go by what compassionate people act with. Uh, so let's let's talk about the the issues a bit, and we'll get specifically to to South Sudan, which is uh, the country you're most familiar with. But but globally. Uh, around the UN, they, they call the situation like the hashtag for famines, right? And, and you referenced it earlier, the food crisis in Yemen, South Sudan, parts of Nigeria and Somalia. Only one of, of those places actually crossed the threshold to become a declared famine, which is a, a specific marker. Uh, and a specific set of indicators are crossed before something can be called a, a famine. And we'll, we'll talk about what those specific indicators are in, in a little bit. But uh, globally, I mean, you said 20 million people are affected off across those four countries. Um, can you give us like a snapshot of, of what each of the countries are, are experiencing right now? Uh, I also want to say that when the famine is declared, it's a very technical term. Mm -hmm. And let me say also political. The point which is to be very importantly noted and highlighted is that we cannot wait for the declaration of the famine. For example, when the last famine was declared six years ago, which was for Somalia, over 260,000 people had died mm -hmm. and nearly half of them were dead already before the famine was declared. 
Uh, yes, South Sudan is the only country where famine was declared in the month of February this year. And in, around June, July, when the update was done, the famine situation was sort of downgraded. So again, we went into the emergency threshold. However, when, you know, when we say somebody is in famine through our system, we have five phases in which people can be uh, in given their food security situation. So the fifth is catastrophe when we say the person is in famine. And number four, just before that is emergency. So when we say the famine has been downgraded in some parts of South Sudan, which means those people are no more in catastrophe and still in emergency. Emergency mm-hmm. is very, very bad and dangerous. And we do not have a whole lot of time left between somebody being very hungry or in emergency to somebody being on the brink of starvation. So the time to act is when people are in phase three and four and not wait for the declaration of the famine. And because of this, um, I would say very limited awareness. And let me say very limited empathy to the issue. We are in this situation where 20 million people are facing threat of starvation. And over 80 million people do not know where their next meal is coming from in these four countries. 80 million people, it's definitely not okay. And I mean, in this day and age, people dying because there is no food, that's really not acceptable. So can you explain like, why is this happening concurrently uh, in, in these four places? Is it mostly due to conflict? I mean, the places that are most affected, like Yemen and uh, in, in Northeast Nigeria and South Sudan and parts of Somalia are, are places in conflict, right? You know, this is this is the, uh, the I would let me say the worst part of it, that in all these four countries, the situation which is near famine is all man-made, except Somalia, which has some drought conditions in some parts of the country. Rest all is related to conflict, which means that if there was peace, people would not have been dead or people would not have been on the brink of starvation. It is what humans have done to humans. Uh, yeah, they say famine is is a man made catastrophe. Always, it's not just the lack of food. It's it's the lack of of it's the political will of getting food to the people who need it. Right. True, and you know, among these countries, some of them parts of parts of Nigeria, and I would say um, some parts of Yemen. I've used to live in Yemen before, and almost all of South Sudan. There is no reason, no legitimate reason for these countries to be experiencing famine. For example, South Sudan has fantastically fertile soil, which does not need any fertilizers. There is so much water. There's enough space. There's lots of young population. You just need seeds, water, which are already there. All you need for these four countries is for the guns to fall silent. So let's let's talk about uh, South Sudan, which is a country you just came from, which you're returning to very shortly as the country director for Mercy Corps. So, for people who are are not familiar with the situation in in South Sudan, can you explain how we got to this point where famine was declared in February and kind of undeclared, but they're still at this precipice of, of famine currently? Uh, how did we how did we get here? I mean, the story is very sad and in many ways unbelievable because now, let me say, whenever you think of South Sudan, what is the visual image which comes to your mind? 
I think of very hungry, desperate families, children, women. Really? But just say- I think that's funny because I think of that hopeful moment in 2011 after uh, after uh, independence had been declared, and I saw these photos from the streets of Juba, people waving the flag, and there seemed this immense moment of, of optimism and and like a, a feeling that the future things are going to be bright. I mean, thank you. That's what I was coming coming to. That is that is what South Sudan was only six years ago. The youngest country in the world and a very hard fought freedom. The jubilation in Juba ran for days and weeks and people were dancing on the streets till midnight all night. Uh, that was July of 2011. And by December of 2013, the country was into serious conflict, which started as a brutal power struggle and then turned into an ethnic clash. Um, the situation since December of 2013 has only deteriorated. The conflict in many ways has, has, has exasperated. Sudan, we are talking of a country which is almost the size of France. And um, within the country, almost 2 million people have been displaced. And when I say 2 million displaced, I don't mean that they have um, been uprooted from their homes once, but many of them have been displaced multiple times. Um, almost 2 million people, sorry, almost uh, 2 million people have left the country and they are taking refuge largely in Uganda and many and many other countries. And we spoke about the hunger figure, 6 million people, which is more than half of the entire population of the country. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And talking of starvation, 1.7 million people are on the brink of starvation. And though technically the famine has Famine declaration has been downgraded, but 45,000 people are still in famine conditions. So I want to have you explain uh, like how a humanitarian operation like Mercy Corps operates in, in this situation. But before then, let's kind of set the political scene a, a little more, because you, you said earlier that it was a power struggle that led to a conflict that you know, fell along ethnic lines. And where where are we today? In the midst, I should say, there are a significant number of UN peacekeepers who have been deployed to the country. And at one point, many hundreds of thousands of people who had uh, sort of fled fighting, fled to UN compounds in these kind of makeshift, um, makeshift, you know, emergency, you know, relief centers mm -hmm. that were not kind of set up for it, but they, it's where people apparently uh, felt, felt most safe was around these UN peacekeeping compounds. But, um, like, what's the situation politically today on the ground? Uh, there is there a peace process to speak of? Are the two combatants are are, are they um, still kind of holding their own ground? Like, what's the what's the current political dynamic? For the peace process, uh, it does exist on paper, and uh, all I can say in conclusion is that a lot more should be done and can be done. And now there are many warring parties. Uh, many more armed factions have come up, and sometimes there are lone gunmen, alone gunmen or uh, unknown armed men. So the situation has deteriorated in terms of how many people are armed, and uh, you know, just uh, the the entire situation has become much more complicated than only having two warring parties. And the the UN compounds, yes, we call them protection of civilian sites. They are still there. Uh, when they were made in early 2014, I don't think they were made with a view of they being existing till 2017. And, you know, the numbers have grown. 
Right now, the total number of people who live in these UN protection of civilian sites, it is 225,000 and it is highest ever. Oh, so, so it's, it's, it's only increasing. I, I, I thought increasing. that it, it had it had dissipated. Is there still like active fighting happening on, on various fronts in South Sudan? In many parts. And then it can it sparks suddenly, then it uh, sort of fades away suddenly. So uh, is I, there like I've a logic in... to it? Logic. Uh, I'm well. I I think that the people who are uh, fighting they have their own logics, but I definitely see no logic to it when the sufferers are your own people. Um. So can we talk? A but little bit I've been in South Sudan since twenty. Sorry, I've been in South Sudan since twenty fifteen, and I don't think I've ever seen a time where we do not know of any active hostility in some parts. Um. So can you? Uh, walk me through what your humanitarian operation looks like. Like, what do you do every single day as the country director? Like, how how are you accessing populations in need? Like, what kind of services are you providing? So in South Sudan, the story right now everybody talks about is the story of the conflict and the hunger crisis. But the real story, I would say, which gets less focus is the story of the response, which organizations like Mercy Corps are doing. Uh, The largest chunk of our work is around life-saving humanitarian assistance. But while doing so, we really believe that in addition to saving lives today, we should leave people with some safety net so that they can move towards rebuilding their lives. So uh, through our work, we work on providing people access to safe water, uh, which would include digging of wells or repairing wells, purification of water, uh, teaching communities how to store and purify water. Then we work a lot around sanitation, building of temporary and permanent latrines and making sure about the cleaning process. Uh, We work a lot around hygiene promotion because that really prevents uh, disease outbreaks and malnourishment and disease are not a great combination. Um, We really believe in the power of cash because it leaves the people with choice. There is dignity in it, and it also helps the revive markets. So, so we would. What does that mean in, in practice? Like uh, the, the, so the in cash practice, forward theory. We would. So we would identify the most vulnerable households, and mo- most of them are most vulnerable. We would give them cash unconditionally, so that they can prioritize what is the need for them, and then use the cash for that. And our post distribution monitoring tells us that people majority things which they buy are related to food, are related to household items, including mosquito nets and mats, and sometimes healthcare and education. We would also give cash grants to traders so that they can restock and then some somehow the local market can revive. Uh, and when I mentioned hygiene, I also want to say we, we do work a lot around menstrual hygiene so that young women and girls can keep themselves uh, disease-free and comfortable. And education is somehow not life-saving per se, But come on, I mean, really, we want to build the future of the nation and half of the children are out of school. So we work on education as well. And because of the current food crisis, we have this year also started working around providing hot cooked meals to children in schools. And lastly, I would say this year we are doing a lot around distributing people with uh, crop seeds, vegetable seeds and fishing kits so that they can not only eat today, but also, you know, have food for tomorrow and maybe even start selling it. What what's like the average size of a, a cash disbursement that you'd give a, a household? So it depends on different uh, projects, but right now what we are doing it is twenty four dollars per cash transfer, 
and then we would uh, uh, in our current program we are doing it six times in the whole year mm-hmm. and and you found that just giving that unconditional cash is just better is is easier better than than say giving food or giving other kind of uh, in-kind donations easier better and much more cost efficient look at south sudan the country is the size of france how many paved how many trunk roads does it have six but not None of them are paved, and during rainy season, more than sixty to seventy percent of the country cannot be accessed. So one option is we buy mosquito nets, for example, or timber in Juba. And in Juba, there are very few suppliers. Maybe they'll get things from Uganda. So just imagine the whole cost and logistics and time we reach these things to the local area. Other option is give people cash. They prioritize the commodity, how much they want, when they want. So. It's faster, it's cheaper, and it's helping the local market. So one question, which uh, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer, because I know um, how sensitive politically uh, the work of humanitarian agencies are. And I should say for people who are unfamiliar, um, humanitarian groups like yours and, and others often don't comment on politics, broadly speaking, because you have to work. Your, your, your goal is just to reach people in need. Um, but are, are you able to reach all the people you need to? Are there any hindrances from, say, the government that prevent you from reaching people that you, you need to access? Many times we are able to access the most vulnerable communities. Many times our access is hindered, and there are many areas where we can never visit. Uh, the hindrances are not only from a particular party. They can be from multiple and the hindrances uh, which uh, obst- which create obstacles for us to access people with aid are sometimes related to weather and roads, but oftentimes related to security and active fighting. So unfortunately, what I have seen in the last two years, the humanitarian space is shrinking. And and humanitarian space is is what humanitarian workers like yourself call the ability of you to do your job, right? I mean, that's that's kind of like a buzzword around the UN humanitarian space, but it translates into you know people like you being able to reach people in need, right? Yes, we being able to reach the people in need, and also importantly, the people in need be able to go to access the services. So, what are are the biggest? Um, obstacles right now is it is it a funding issue i mean is that why this appeal is coming together right now i mean like how short on funds are you and, and if you had all the funds you needed would you be able to reach everyone that you could so yes the biggest reason is that we are short of funds the un appeal for all these four countries we only have 30 around 30 percent of what is needed so funding is a very, very critical need, and we have no time left because people, when somebody is on the brink of starvation, there isn't a huge amount of time left. So yes, we are in a big resource crunch, really big resource crunch. Once we get the money, we will be able to utilize it most definitely. We are saving lives every day, and we can save many more. Yes, there there would be access challenges. There might be areas which we will not a, not be able to access due to security-related questions, but that should not stop us from, from trying. And we also hope that the uh, parties in power and the international bodies which are interested in the welfare of South Sudan on parallel will continue to keep working and hopefully achieving some success in making humanitarian access smooth. And let me say, if we get all the resources to save all those lives in a record time, what we need is absolute 
secure and uninterrupted humanitarian access. Um, can I ask, like, why do you think this issue uh, hasn't resonated with the American public as much as it should? Like, why is there a need for this kind of unprecedented global coalition to, to come together? That's what surprises me as well, because Americans have always been very generous in, you know, extending a hand of help to people who are in need. Uh, sometimes I feel the news environment in the U.S. is such that there isn't space for any other news item to reach to people. I have been here for last five days when I switch on the channels. It's only a particular type of news which is running all the time. So in addition to American public, we also appeal and urge to the media. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, Madeleine Albright has this quote that the American people are the most generous people in the world with their shortest attention spans. Um, I, I'm wondering, so... So you you have this appeal. Uh, you are you know working day in day out to to feed people and and to to care for people and to give people a modicum of of dignity in in South Sudan. Yet you know your work will kind of remain important, but your ability to actually fulfill your ultimate goal will remain unrealized until there is a political solution to this this conflict. What role do you have, do humanitarians have in, in pushing for like a peaceful political solution to, to conflict in general? Actually, that's absolutely true. The biggest problem in South Sudan uh, is what we are seeing is that we are trying to find a humanitarian solution to a political problem. I often feel with the work which we do, I often feel that we are mopping the floor while the tap is on. Life-saving, life-saving, life-saving. And if we look at the numbers of people who are in need, it's increasing and increasing because uh, the guns need to fall silent. And it's a country of immense potential with so many natural resources. And this country can easily, in few years, be on its feet if only there was peace. So um, what we can do and we should do most definitely, we cannot avoid or delay life-saving assistance at all. But along with that, we have to invest into longer-term development programming so that communities can rebuild their lives. Their livelihoods need to be built. And then also, we have to help them to become more resilient so that they can cope up for any future shock. And I really hope that the international... Um, bodies and governments in power like the U.S. Uh, continue to play a strong role at the diplomatic level to ensure that the peace process is implemented uh, very smoothly and swiftly. So can I ask maybe a more personal question? Um, how do you deal uh, personally or, or emotionally with um, all the, the setbacks that, that you that you face. I mean, you said that, that you're like mocking, mopping the floor with a spigot turned on. I mean, how do you reconcile like emotionally the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of futility it must feel like at times to do this kind of work when the, when, when sort of the, the forces, the political forces are, are making your job just so, so difficult and, and so near impossible? It's definitely not easy. Working in South Sudan is highly challenging. And if I may say, highly rewarding. Because at every point with every frustration, also there is a realization that our work has helped people who are so much in need and they are not getting a lot of help. 
as a humanitarian when we accept this profession we know that our profession comes with certain risks we know those risks our family and friends who we leave behind they also know those risks but also i want to believe that the humanitarian principles to which everybody has agreed which includes the safety and security of humanitarians will be adhered to those promises will be kept because those promises have been broken far too many times i'm so proud of my team they walk into swamps for many many hours have been hiking for many hours sometimes days together to reach people with supplies living on ground in tents in the most difficult living conditions however the solidarity and the sense of achievement when you see a smile and a teary a tear i thank you from a mother it's all worth it uh well deepmala thank you so much for your time is there anything else you want to you want to leave with us anything else you wanted to to discuss before i let you go I just want to say to the American public and also to the Congress that in 20 years time when you look back you should be able to confidently conclude that you did everything in your power to save people from dying due to hunger. All right. Well, well thank you. Hopefully, you know, you're you're closer to Capitol Hill than I am right now. So hopefully you'll you'll take your message there uh after we we conclude this call. But thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful and clarifying and and thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Deep Mala. One more thing before I let you go. If you are interested in joining me for the Careers in International Affairs conference call that I am hosting with two experts who have had pretty interesting careers in international affairs, two different kinds of careers, uh, I, that call is happening. It's happening on July 26 at noon Eastern. And to access it, you will need to click on a link that I will send you if you email me and express your interest in joining. So go to the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me an email if you'd like to join the call. The call will take place over a VOIP program, so you'll just need to be at a computer with a microphone. input on it and you can join if you're not able to make it at that time just send me an email with your question and I will pose that question to the panel thank you in advance and I hope as many of you as possible can join see you later bye The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.